Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that looks at how different communities prepared for and responded to natural hazards such as floods, wildfires, hurricanes, and more. How have planners in these communities promoted resilience in their hazard mitigation to disaster recovery planning? We'll find out on this episode of Resilience Roundtable, brought to you in conjunction with the American Planning Association's Hazard Mitigation and Disaster Recovery Planning Division. I'm your host, Rich Roths. I'm a part-time senior hazard planner for Burton Planning Service of Columbus, Ohio, and previously a principal planner with URS AECOM Corporation. Before that, I was a senior planner for FEMA Region 5, where I was in charge of coordinating all mitigation planning activities for the six states in the region. I'm also a proud member of the American Planning Association's Hazard Mitigation and Disaster Recovery Planning Division. Our guest today is Kim Mickelson, AICPJD. Kim is an attorney and certified planner whose practice is concentrated in the representation of governmental and nonprofit corporations. She is past president of the Texas chapter of the American Planning Association, and she has represented cities in Texas and Illinois on ordinance drafting and various land use matters. She writes and speaks nationally on planning and land use law issues. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Kim, can you tell us about your background and what got you into the field of hazard mitigation and disaster recovery planning? Sure. Um, Maybe let me start with the second half of that because I don't really know that I'm necessarily in the field of hazard mitigation and disaster recovery planning. As you noted, I'm an attorney. I always wanted to practice land use law, so I feel particularly fortunate that I've been able to spend my career doing that. That is really what's gotten me into hazard mitigation and disaster recovery, particularly here in the Gulf Coast region. Um, Prior to joining the city of Houston, I was in private practice representing smaller cities around the area, um, including doing some work in Galveston uh, post-Hurricane Ike. Um, I was a city attorney for Friendswood uh, post-Tropical Storm Allison, which was probably really my first foray into what happens during and after a disaster, um, a real learning experience. I joined the city of Houston last August, in fact, in the middle of Hurricane Harvey was my first day. So um, that was uh, quite an introduction or quite an entrance. An introduction under fire, so to speak. (laughs) Or underwater. (laughs) Can you give us an idea of what the area was like prior to Hurricane Harvey? So... The the whole Gulf Coast area has been through boom and bust periods, but generally and fortunately in the last, I'll say, 30 years or so, it's been mostly boom. So both inside the city of Houston and in the other communities I represented, um, there was a lot of growth. There was a lot of building. There's a real desire to have economic development because if you don't allow a certain type of building, then the fear is all those tax dollars go down the road to another community. So 
very developer building friendly, and I, I don't mean that as a negative. It's just um, people were encouraging building and growth even out beyond, you know, city limits into extraterritorial jurisdiction, which might not happen in other areas with growth boundaries. Okay, actually, I know here in Illinois, we have the same issues sometimes. Can you discuss the impact of Harvey on the community? You know, since we've gotten over a year away from Harvey actually happening, uh, refresh the listeners on Harvey. Sure. So city of Houston, um, well, the Houston region, and, and I think it's easy. That's an important distinction. I think it's easy for people to just focus on Houston, but really it was the broader Houston region. Rockport got the brunt of it south of Corpus Christi, you know, all the way up along the Gulf Coast to um, Baytown and Beaumont on the east. But, you know, city of Houston area, immediate area of Harris County and so forth, saw 27 trillion gallons of water. Somebody equated that at one point to how many astrodomes that would fill up, and I don't remember how many it was, but it was a, it was a huge number. We had 2,600 miles of city roads underwater, and more than 345,000 homes were affected by the flooding um, to some extent, either substantially damaged or maybe not as substantially damaged. But as people may remember, you know, it was like the Carolinas, some of the post-rain event flooding that happened um, as the rivers filled up and as the reservoirs released water affected uh, homes that maybe hadn't been flooded in the actual rain event. Somewhat similar to what we've uh, seen recently in North Carolina. We are absolutely seeing the same thing in North Carolina. I saw the, kept seeing pictures thinking, did people not pay attention during Harvey and get out of the way? Yeah, you have that post-storm rivering flooding, which is almost a little more surreal than the actual event. I wrote evacuation orders for some of the residences um, around the reservoirs after the storm had passed and the sun was out. So it was kind of surreal is the only word I can use to describe that. Did the residents uh, listen to the uh, evacuation orders? Well, you know, overall, we did not do a a citywide evacuation order. Um, That proved not well thought out in Hurricane Rita a number of years ago. Um, I do think that um, in these cases, because they were smaller communities, people did listen to them and did get out of the way. Of course, they had very little time to plan for it and pack things up or so forth, but but I do think they, they listened to it, by and large. Uh, all, there, are, there are always holdouts. Of course there are. You know, you've got some people that say, I want to see what it's like, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. There are always holdouts. I can go to the second floor. I can go to the roof. Did Houston have a recovery plan or an annex to their response plan to guide their recovery yeah. actions? In fact, Houston had approved 
a new hazard mitigation plan in March of 2018. So we had a fairly up-to-date plan that talked about, you know, the scope and what, what would happen, what things to look for, and what our goals should be. Um, those were carried forward in the mayor's recovery plan as, you know, post, post-disaster recovery got initiated. Um, we also had a wide variety of operational plans um, to direct how we would respond to different situations, um, specifically for hurricane response. But overall, manage, you know, emergency management plans were well-prepared, I think, and involved probably what we all are used to as the, as the components of a thorough emergency management plan on the roles of various services, what we need to do legally, how we manage debris management, and so forth. Could you describe some of the uh, mitigation actions that took place? So the City of Houston updated its uh, hazard mitigation action plan really in response to the previous um, 500-year events that we had had earlier in in the years prior. Uh, had a tax day flood, a, a Memorial Day flood. So we had we had looked at that, but we had not really. I think the city had not taken a lot of steps as far as requiring elevation of structures or looking at additional things that could be mitigated in it for a future storm. That really came with Harvey and the, the recognition that it was the third major 500-year or greater storm that we'd seen in 18 months. And that's when um, really we started looking, the city started looking at revising its floodplain regulations, which has now been completed to require higher building elevations, revised its infrastructure design standards to require um, more on-site detention, less reliance on the streets, and so forth. In the year that's uh, passed since Harvey, can you discuss some of the mitigation actions that have actually taken place thus far? You know, such as how many houses have been uh, modified? You had mentioned earlier substantial damage. And if those structures are repaired, they have to uh, be mitigated to a higher elevation. Right. So the storm happened in August of 2017. The city adopted new floodplain regulations the end of February of 2018. They were not effective until September 1st. So If a home was substantially damaged and came in for a building permit prior to September 1st, all they had to do was build up to our old floodplain regulations, which was fine. That was, you know, one foot to 18 inches above the base flood elevation of the 100-year storm. Some homes that flooded were not built to that standard, so yes, they had to come up to that. There were approximately 3,000, slightly under 3,000 letters of substantial damage sent out. So of the total homes that sustained damage, over 345,000 
really a small number was substantially damaged. Anyone coming in for a building permit post-September 1 will have to build up to two feet above the base flood elevation in the 500-year floodplain. The estimation by the city's public works department was that the old 500-year floodplain is going to be the new 100-year floodplain. With the release in late September of the Atlas 14 numbers, we think that's going to be borne out in the maps, but that evaluation is still underway. The city also um, revised its infrastructure design manual standards for drainage and detention requirements, and there used to be a previous, I'll call it grandfathering, if you had a structure on your property, even if you raised it, you got credit for the amount of detention that previous structure had provided. And that grandfathering has been removed. We're treating it as if it is a brand new, brand new development. Um, that has created some consternation in the development community. Um, there are also some requirements in the new regulations about not adding fill to property and managing natural sheet flow and ensuring that that gets accomplished on site. Uh, could you explain also how this affects new construction? That will affect all new construction that comes in after September 1. Many homes are elevating to meet the new standards. We may end up with a hodgepodge of developments or neighborhoods where some homes are still on slab and the house next door is elevated eight feet. We are already seeing that in some areas of town, but I think as time goes on, we'll look more like a beach town maybe, but we'll, we'll get more compliance. Uh, that sounds great. Okay, after the immediate response, can uh, you enlighten us what went according to plan and what didn't? I think like many disasters, what doesn't go as smoothly as you would like is the debris removal um, and recovery. One thing we found here in Houston that was problematic was as probably everyone in the country knows, Houston does not have citywide zoning. Um, therefore, we have a lot of communities with deed restrictions and communities that are gated. Those are private streets. We didn't feel we could send public trucks out on those streets or trucks working on behalf of the city to uh, take away the debris without some agreement from those private homeowners associations. So that was a learning curve that um, I, I'm not sure had been addressed before and causes, of course, people calling their city council members because they have stinky, moldy building materials out in front of their house. But that was a unique environment. And I think in general, the handling of debris is just always difficult post-storm, especially post-massive storm like we had. There's just not enough landfill space. 
where, where do you put everything? Do you know, uh, I responded to Hurricane Katrina uh, in New Orleans, and they actually brought in, uh, if you will, grinders to grind up the debris to allow uh, more debris to go in the landfills, and they also received permits from EPA to burn that. Did that happen in Houston? I don't. I don't know that. Those, those are both interesting, but I don't recall that occurring. What one thing are you really, or Houston, really proud of from the recovery period? I think that the administration is really proud of meeting its guiding principles for the recovery effort. The administration developed a program about looking forward, not looking backwards, and ensuring that the recovery effort was targeted to those of greatest need. So the emphasis was on housing, getting housing permits back out, getting ordinances passed to allow FEMA trailers uh, in locations we did, as many cities do, had to extend that. But I think that the overall response was unified and regional and quickly responsive. The element of building forward and not backwards is really ensconced in the rewrite of the floodplain regulations and the infrastructure design manual that will provide greater protection to life and property um, in a future storm as those as those standards get met. You brought up the FEMA trailers. I know in some areas they've had issues after the disaster with residents being willing to give up the trailers, especially if they're offered uh, the ability to uh, purchase them at a lower cost. Are you having any issues like that in Houston? We've not seen any issues like that, but we did make that, the Houston ordinance did make that a condition that FEMA had to apply for the permit for the trailers and agree to remove them. FEMA trailers will also pose an issue in some of those neighborhoods with deed restrictions. Uh, We will see those moved out there more quickly, but I think this the city took some proactive steps in its ordinance to uh, make sure that they're not lingering or that they are relocated to areas where they're permitted. That sounds like something other communities uh, should look into and uh, possibly copy. I like to say instead of Houston, we have a problem. Houston, we have the answers. (laughs) Frequently after disasters, communities need additional planning assistance from outside, and APA is beginning to put together teams that they could send out upon request to provide that assistance after disasters. Did Houston have any outside assistance, or what kind of planning assistance do you think they could use in the near future? So I'm really excited to talk about that. Um, I was still chapter president of the Texas chapter of APA during the storm, and 
that was one of the first things I immediately thought of was what can APA do? How do we get on the list for teens to the communities that end up being affected by this? So my first week I mentioned I was just starting this new job, but we couldn't come into the office. I couldn't leave my neighborhood. So I spent the time on reading materials and talking to people. I was on the phone with APA in Chicago to see how we would do this. And so um, we did not initially have anyone come down from APA or from a, a community planning assistance team perspective, but we helped start, I think, the foundation fundraising effort. And we, our Texas chapter has applied for and been awarded grants from that effort to uh, assist with some of the smaller communities uh, recovery outside of Houston and building off of um, the lessons learned from Hurricane Sandy uh, on the East Coast. We're going to start a dialogue with that. We have projects in the works to request uh, official CPAT teams to come in um, and assist with specific planning efforts. We know the need is there and um, it's identifying those communities. So we're working on developing those as we speak. The other thing we've done and are working on is to really establish um, Texas planners for Texas communities where we, we know planners want to help affected communities we had some people go out and do um, on-site, you know, immediate assistance with permitting and so forth in small numbers, but hoping to develop that as a permanent program, too, is, I think, one of the chapter's lessons to take away from this. It sounds like uh, other chapters could learn from you. Well, I was on the phone with the Louisiana chapter president, former chapter president, who had been um, president of the chapter during Katrina, Steve Villavaso, um, during the storm, um, saying, help, what do I do? And he said, start a committee. So, yes, if that's the advice for chapters to take away, that was good advice. Yes, yeah, Steve is uh, really good on that. I worked with him during Katrina, so. Yeah. One other thing I will mention that... Um, came out of or, or has occurred since Harvey is that the city of Houston has now been named the 101st resilient city in the 100 resilient city programs uh, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. So that has been approved by city council um, and we look forward to the program moving forward. Every disaster is a learning experience. What do you know now that you wish you had known before Hurricane Harvey? That's a tough question because I'm not sure you know what you don't know when it happens. <laughs> Maybe the way to answer that question is that I learned what great resource materials were out there. I spent a lot of time with the APA planning advisory service document on planning for post-disaster recovery and reconstruction. I think I memorized it. Reading the hazard mitigation plans and also looking at a really good publication from the floodplain management 
Association on flood risk in the court. So as a lawyer, I'm always focused or concerned about what about takings claims? What if we increase our regulations? What liability do we have? That was really, really helpful. When I was brought into the city, I was hired as a planning department attorney because obviously that's my, my primary expertise. Um, so floodplain regulations kind of got thrown on me because I had some familiarity with them. But um, again, finding those resources was one of the, one of the best tools. APA works closely with the Association of State Floodplain Managers on a number of uh, projects, so it's good to hear that you were able to learn from them also. Yeah. In the case of Houston, uh, are you aware of any changes afoot to prepare for the next disaster? Well, we currently have one of the things out of the recovery committee efforts is looking at uh, flood, more flood mitigation infrastructure uh, to make Houston more resilient. There's, there have long been plans for or talk of a third reservoir uh, and of needing additional funds for not just that, but additional detention projects or to assist property owners with buyouts and elevations. Another infrastructure need is looking for perhaps some of the Tiger Grant funds to improve alerts at flood-prone traffic intersections. We have lots of highways in Houston, lots of them flood. Even a week after the storm, I think every single highway out of Houston had water covering some portion of it. So we, we definitely have those kind of infrastructure needs. The other aspect of that is there's been a lot of talk locally about um, an Ike Dyke is what it's called, but essentially building on the Netherlands model of diking and protecting land from flooding during a storm and protecting the, the infrastructure and land immediately adjacent that might be subject to flooding along the waterways. One funny thing about post-flood is whenever I would be at a professional conference, people would say, well, what has Houston done to stop to make flooding less likely? Well, all of these infrastructure projects are long-term projects. First, you have to get the money, then you have to let the bids, then you have to get the land, then you have to construct it. And those are 20-year projects. So we can't do that immediately, but that is probably the biggest need. Unfortunately, uh, our society thinks of instant gratification. You know, why wasn't it done yesterday type of a thing. What opportunities do you see in the future for Houston or, in your case, for the uh, Texas chapter of APA? I like to think that Houston can really become a model for post-disaster planning and building. We know another storm is going to come. We're located on the coast. It's extremely likely. We've been extremely lucky um, up till now, but we know we know it's going to happen. So I'd like to see Houston be the model for it and be a leader in that. 
For the Texas chapter, I really hope that we evolve this Texas Planners for Texas Communities idea. Texas is affected by not just hurricanes and coastal storms, but by flooding from other events, by fires, by tornadoes. And the idea of getting that kind of a, a program established in this really large state would be a goal I'd like to see Texas, the Texas chapter accomplish. One other thing I will mention in regard to that is that the Texas chapter received one of the Public Health Association Planners for Health grants uh, specifically to deal with post-disaster recovery. And we used that grant to work with Van Zant County, who was hit by a series of seven tornadoes in April of 2017. Vanzant County is located to the east of the Dallas area, uh, fairly rural, primarily farming and agricultural county. So we prepared this to kind of be a guide to communities, particularly smaller cities or rural counties, of what do they do post-disaster of some sort. And I think that there are takeaways in that, in that document for disaster recovery of any type, though it was directed to, to their particular situation. So, yes, I would hope that would be helpful to other, other communities or chapters. Lastly, where can we find you online, and are there any resources you'd like our listeners to know about? So I am on Twitter at KMTXEX. And I would point listeners to the Texas Planning website, txplanning.org, where we have the Van Zant County Post-Disaster uh, Recovery Manual from Planners for Health. And I would also encourage them to read the Planning Advisory Service document um, that became my Bible on planning for post-disaster recovery and, and reconstruction. They should send their lawyers to the Association of State Floodplain Managers website for the flood risk in the court information as well, just to keep their lawyers calm. Kim, thank you for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for the time. We appreciate uh, letting you all know what Texas is doing. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For resources on hazard mitigation and disaster recovery, visit planning.org slash resilience. To hear past episodes of the APA podcast, visit planning.org slash podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast series? send it to podcast at planning.org.